0: is Undisciplined, Academic by Nature, Undisciplined in Practice. And here we are at Season 5. I cannot believe it. And we've had a couple of changes for this season. Uh, My co-host Matthew has decided to run off. We've had a divorce. I am kidding. He has had some life changes and uh, we now have a new co-host with us. And so for the season starting off, I'd like to introduce you to our new co-host. But before we get into that, to contextualize that, I want to introduce you to the African in Black Studies and why this is a problem space. Now, one scholar, Louis Chokwe Sokwe describes black studies as this problem space, right? And you might hear when people talk about black studies, they might call it African-American studies or African diaspora studies or Africana studies. And uh, for Chokwe Sokwe, black studies is is this critical, cultural, political, and institutional problem, right? It's interdisciplinary, but it's also intersectional, it's concerned about culture, economics, politics, art, medicine, right? All of these things. But he, he says that the definition of black studies as a problem space also alludes to the historically diverse and complex ways that scholars conceptualize black studies as a discipline, right? In theory, what do we do? And one of the issues that scholars take up in thinking about black studies, especially a former professor of mine, Jamima Peir, she says that there's a clear divide between studies that deal with Africa and those that address race and transnational blackness. So in other words then, there's a clear distinction between African studies and African diaspora studies. Where is the African in black studies? Are Africans not black? Did they just give us the blackness and then they became unblack? Why is there not more prominent representation for Africans in black studies? And we can think about all of the ways in which um, Africans and the diaspora are tied together, right, according to the ways in which race works. Slavery, colonialism, right, are important factors, you know, in addition to race, in the formation of black identity. but how scholars tend to address this in academic scholarship, how the institution tend to set up these kinds of programs, tend to make it even how the students go about their lives, how African students form friendships, form relationships on campus, creates these silos that tend to create these kinds of um, distinctions, right? In terms of perspectives and approach, right? So, this is the problematic of race, right? So, despite the analogous experiences um, of Africans and African diasporic people, of African studies and of African diaspora studies, right, um, we tend not to see the mutuality of the black experiences being represented on one platform. So, You know, people tend to say African studies take race for granted. How much of African studies studies race, right? Um, Or it reinforces racializing tropes about Africa. And African study, African diaspora studies, or Black studies takes Africa for granted and reinforces Africa's racialization, right? So, you know, there's been a number of works and, you know, people. That, you know, bemoans the ways that we do not center Africa in black studies and these kinds of analysis. And think about the modern circulation of African peoples, those that did not come via the Middle Passage, but who came by planes, you know, like Barack Obama's dad and my new co-host here. <laughs> <laughs> So we are happy to have this new voice so that we can articulate this African perspective in African and African American studies here at the University of Arkansas, at the diversity of tones and um, languages and perspectives and voices and culture in this very undisciplined thing that we're doing. So uh, with that being said, let's welcome... Nenebi Tony, that's what you want to be called? Yes. Why?
1: Okay, so it is my identity. Nenebi, in my language in Ghana, I'm from Ada. Ada is a town in uh, coastal Ghana. And Ada is a very important town in Ghana for tourism purposes, right? Because the biggest river in Ghana, River Volta, Joins with the Gulf of Guinea, the sea in Ada. Mm-hmm. So, that point, the estuary is a very important tourism point. So, we have beaches. I don't know whether my pronunciation of that word is correct in English. The <laughs> <laughs> and then we have lakes, uh, sites, and everything. So, people go to Ada a lot for tourism purposes. Right. Yes. Yeah, so, my name, Nenebi, means prince in my language. Oh, so you're a prince? My dad is a chief. A
0: Achale, are <laughs> oh, you be trying to run game? <laughs> oh, no, 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 for real, for real.
1: So my name, Nenebi, Tony, means Prince Tony. Uh, yeah, so if anybody from Ghana who he is, Nenebi, knows exactly which part of Ghana I'm from. Uh, yes. Uh, so I always lead with the Nenebi. Uh-huh. And then Tony is, because Ghana was colonized by the British... What's your what's your European name? That's my European name. What is the full name then? Anthony. Anthony what? Anthony Owura Akuaku. Okay. Yeah, Akuaku. Owura is my grandfather's name. Mm-hmm. So my surname is supposed to be Akuaku. My, my dad said he wanted to honor his father, so he added Ura, and then I had a double surname. Oh. Yeah. And I noticed that in America, when people have double surname, it means that they took their mother's surname and, and the, the had, father's yeah, surname. Me, both of my surnames are from my, my dad. <laughs> <laughs> so you are not from a matrilineal group? No. However, it's, that is kind of very complicated mm-hmm. because my ethnic group is patrilineal. But my clan within my ethnic group is matrilineal.
0: What's the totem of your clan?
1: Is. Um disappointed in myself right now. <laughs> <laughs> Is it the crocodile? Is it the leopard? I don't leopard? Know. Is it I have the... to text my dad to ask. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay.
0: Uh, yeah. I just found it, you know, when we just recently went for, st- for study abroad and we were at the National Museum and we were learning all the totems of the Akans, yeah. right? And, you know, I think of myself as an Akans as a Jamaican. Yeah, of course. Yeah. these people came from the Akans. Yeah. Um, and, but what it put me in mind of, did you watch Game of Thrones?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't watch, I watched a few episodes.
0: Because I have a Game of Thrones reference. Because for I like
1: to be. <laughs> I like to be different for, for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> so all my friends were watching Game of Thrones. I decided not to watch it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, you know, the the, the, the Starks, yeah, right? The dire wolf was their totem. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I was like, oh, my God. So, yeah, Ghanaian clans have their yeah. own totem. And I was like, I made the yeah. connection. The reason
1: why I didn't know is I, I schooled. I grew up in the Khan community. Mm-hmm. And I went to school in akan community. So, mm-hmm. in Ghana, we have a course in school called Ghanaian language. Mm-hmm. And the language is just because... In Ghana, the word language means culture as well. Okay. So you study the culture and language of whichever part of Ghana you are going to school at. Okay. So because I went to school in Kumasi, which is the capital of the Ashantis, Mm -hmm. I studied the Ashanti culture. Right. So I tend to know more about the Ashanti culture, more than my own.
0: Or do you know more about the Ashantis because the Ashantis are such a dominant people?
1: Sometimes, but no. I think it has to do with the fact that when when I was... In northern Ghana, I knew more about the northern Ghana culture than the Ashantis. Mm-hmm. That's where I grew up for the first, maybe until I was nine, mm-hmm. and then I moved to Kumasi when I was nine. Okay. Yeah, so I think it has to do with where I went to school more than the Ashantis being the dominant, right?
0: Right. So uh, how did you get to the United States then? You were in the north, and you were in the Ashanti region, and now you're at the University of Arkansas. What are you doing
1: here? Okay. Long long oh. story short, <laughs> I was born in Accra, which is the capital of Ghana, and lived there for some time. And my dad is a cop, and he, in Ghana, you don't get to decide where you want to be a cop at. The government decides and post you anywhere they want. And then if you're there for some years and they feel like people are too familiar with you, they move you somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So my dad lived in northern Ghana, and then I went to join him for some time. And after two years, he was moved from northern Ghana to Kumasi, mm-hmm. and then I lived there. Then I went to one of the best secondary schools in Ghana. We had this conversation before that in Ghana, the high school you attend is the most important part of your life. Yes, it's (laughs) the same in
0: Jamaica as well. Yeah, so
1: I attended one of the best high schools in Ghana, which is in the eastern region. Mm -hmm. So I moved around a lot. Yes. And then after high school, I went to, my first degree was in business. But when I was in school, I was already working in the entertainment industry. I was already a publicist. And I worked. Tell with the people who you work for, because you're just
0: dallying around. It. The Tell them.
1: <laughs> I worked with Samini, <laughs> who is an international award-winning musician <laughs> in Ghana. <laughs> <laughs> I worked with Obwo, who is now the managing director of Ghana Post. Mm-hmm. He's not a politician, but before then, he was the president of the G- musician union of Ghana. Right. So he was a very important musician in Ghana, multiple award-winning. And I also work with, I need to mention that, with a musician called Becker. Mm-hmm. And Becker is known to be one of the biggest female musicians out of Ghana. Yes. And it's one of my most important jobs because Becker used to have this show called Girl Talk, mm-hmm. where only women were allowed to go in, into the show. Mm. All the performance, most of the performance are women because there was there's still this issue of Gender. Gender. When it comes to playing musical instruments, mm-hmm. so some of the people playing musical instruments were men, and they were allowed in. And then the back room staff were also men. And so I was one of the few men who had the opportunity of going to the girl talk every single year. Oh <laughs> yeah. wow! Charlie, <Which> so you <laughs> enjoy? <laughs> so
0: after that, did you then come to the US? Yes.
1: Then I had a law degree. I went. F- I went back to school for law. A law degree in um, in Ghana in Central University. And then from that, I started looking at the possibility of going into academia because I like to write. Mm -hmm. And in Ghana, to be a law professor, you have to have a master's in law as well. Mm -hmm. So I started looking at schools that I should go to. And this is not what I put in my statement of purpose, (laughs) but my best friend lives in Dallas. (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted a school that's close enough to Dallas but also offer something that I'm interested in. So the University of Arkansas School of Law has a master's program in food agricultural law. Mm -hmm. And the main reason I picked that program was because agriculture is still very linked to culture. Mm. Yes. And I wanted my study to be focused on African and specifically Ghanaian culture.
0: So what do you mean by agriculture is still linked to culture?
1: Because... I think we get into a lot more details later on, but the main thing is when it comes to practicing of agriculture and farming, farmers are very, very connected to their indigenous beliefs, Mm -hmm. and then they still, even their technology is hard to sell a new technology to farmers, not just in Ghana, but even in the U.S., it's hard to sell a new technology to farmers you have to sell it through a more culturally relevant way of doing things. Wow. Yes. Of course. Yes. So people in agriculture tend to be married to their cultural beliefs. Can
0: you give us an example? Okay. So, is it that you don't plant things on okay, like certain y- days? Yes.
1: So, in Ghana, we have rest days when it comes to mm-hmm. farming.
0: That's not going to work for capitalism, baby. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Actually, that's worse for capitalism. <laughs> we we'll get into that. But, so in most communities in Ghana, the Ashantis, you don't plant on... Or you don't go to the farm at all on Thursdays mm-hmm. because they believe that the mother earth is born on Thursday.
0: Ah. Yes.
1: So it's called Asasiya. So in Ghana, you are given a name based on the day you were born. And ya is a woman born on a Thursday. Right. So Asasiya means earth. So Asasiya means... The earth woman who is born on a Thursday. Right. Yes. So
0: earth is a woman. The earth
1: is a woman. I, yes. I want that to be <laughs> registered. <laughs> yes. The earth is a woman. And there are studies, there have been written by a lot of Ghanaian intellectuals that the earth is not a goddess. She is a principal power. Mm. Yes. So the earth doesn't have a... gods and goddesses have priests, but the earth doesn't have a priest. So everybody in the community is a descendant of the of the Earth God of the Earth Power. Oh, yes.
0: Wow, that's amazing. So you've been studying that.
1: Yes, that's where my studies have been focused on. How the actually the first political movement in Ghana against colonial rule was linked to the Earth, the land, and agricultural practices. Really? How yeah. so? So in eighteen. 18- Ninety-four, the British proposed a bill in Ghana called Crown Land Bill, mm-hmm. and the purpose was to nationalize every land in Ghana, and then give the Queen of Britain power over all the lands in Ghana. Because the Queen owns all the crown lands. Yes.
0: Yes. The, even the, now in Jamaica, once you're in the Commonwealth, yes, the, the King Queen. owns all the lands yes. that are not in use. Can you imagine? Yes,
1: that's how it is. And, it, and actually, the Queen have a a, a lordial land of all land under the Commonwealth.
0: Yes, yes. Yes. Uh, Except the wealth is not common, as Trevor Noah
1: says. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So in Ghana, that is not what it is. The Queen does not own all the land. Uh. Because when that was proposed, there were Ghanaian intellectuals, which is something that is linked to what you talked about at the the beginning of your introduction. Mm -hmm. There were Ghanaian intellectuals who were lawyers. And what happened was the British we were taking some Ghanaians to school right? in England because they... they are were m- in the belly of the beast yeah. learning all the stuff to yeah. be the Trojan horse. That's what the British wanted to do. Yes. But some of these intellectuals came back to Ghana, mm-hmm. and then they were looking at how the British were treating people in Ghana and how they were treating people in England, and they were like, no... No matter how educated we are in the British system, we are not British.
0: And and that's, I mean, that was a common thing, right? For all these people who went to the belly of the bees, whether it's um, people who went to France from Martinique or Senegal to yeah. study or from Jamaica and Ghana and Nigeria to study in England and then forming student unions and You know, because they went there to study so they could become British administrators. And then they realized that even if we're going to be on the top, we're still going to be maligned by race. And so they come back and they form these independence movements based on these kinds of issues.
1: So the first movement was the Aborigines Rights Protection Society. And that movement was a call that the land in Ghana is not like the land in the commonwealth or in the Britain, because the land is not a property. The land is the principal power. For want of a better word, I would say the land is a god. Mm-hmm. So you cannot just come and say you own the land. Mm-hmm. There is no a property to be owned.
0: So this is, you know, this is fascinating because I think what this teaches us, right, for those people in different kinds of ethnic studies, whether it's indigenous studies or black studies yeah. or Latin and Latin American studies, is that there are different ways in which people view the world, yes. how they view their approach to land, yeah. right? So you saw, you remember back in the day when the people at Standing Rock were
1: trying to protect the water?
0: Yeah. And they're like, oh, go away. Let's run this pipe <laughs> through
1: <laughs> this. But the funny thing <laughs> Actually, even if you are studying uh, property as a concept, as a jurisprudence concept, in the U.S., the um, the concept is every right you have as an individual Mm -hmm. comes from your right to own property. So exactly. the reason why you have a freedom of speech, yes, stems from your right to own property. Absolutely. Yeah. So you have speech so you can protect your property. Exactly. Life is not as important as property.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, everything revolves. You know, you have a whole protest. They're like, why are you destroying property? Yeah. Did you see all the people who died? No. Why are you destroying property? Part. Yes. Property, and that's why they could not abolish slavery. Yeah. Right, because f- slavery was the basis on which white people had their freedom. Yes. Because. Slaves were property. Your property, yes.
1: yes. So the people in Ghana, these intellectuals understood that it stems back to if they own the land, then they own the people. Mm. So the uh, first resistance to British rule was: you can yeah pass laws and have uh, uh, jurisdiction over the over the people in a in a sense, but you cannot own the land. And so that is what my studies focused on. And there are some aspects of that that my study is focused on. One, how the resistance movement operated; how the jurisprudence of land has evolved from then till now. Mm -hmm. Because even till date, even though you can sell land in Ghana now, there is a limit to what you can do with the land. So in land, you in Ghana you don't own land outright as an individual. You have lease hold. You lease Aladdin. for ninety nine years. For ninety nine years. Yes, yes. Yes.
0: Okay. So, um, you uh applied for the graduate certificate in African and African American studies. Yes, I did. Why?
1: Okay. So when I, my my study was initially focused on law. Right. Right. But when I was doing my research, I realized that my study could benefit from having a more interdisciplinary approach to it. Right. Because there's a concept of religion, there's the concept of race, because some of the people who fought, it is not something that is discussed enough over here, Mm -hmm. some of the people who fought for their indigenous rights were the same people who were resisting slavery under British rule. Mm -hmm. So Britain was one of the first countries to abolish slavery, in British land. Mm-hmm. So you couldn't buy slaves and send them to the UK, mm-hmm. but you can buy slaves and send them to the United States.
0: Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so the reason why that was taught was because there were Ghanaian indigenous writers and lawyers who were speaking against that. But when you are studying history, you only know about the British writers who... Absolutely, yes.
0: Wilberforce and Clarkson. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. but there was
1: Brew, who was Ghanaian, There is John Mesa Sabah, and Bruce' grandfather actually was a slave trader. Mm. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So he, some of these things I realized that were coming up and I felt that I needed to have a broader approach to my paper. So I applied for a certificate program so that I can expand my research beyond just the law and bring in the religion aspect of it, the ethnicity aspect of it, the more cultural aspect of it to my paper.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about the research paper that you were writing that include all of those interdisciplinary aspects
1: for your law program? Yeah. So my research is on sacred forest and shifting cultivation. I don't remember the full title in my head right now. Mm-hmm. But the whole concept is in Ghana there is a concept called sacred forest and sacred forest is the fact that some forests and land in Ghana are considered to be sacred, and so there is a restriction on who have access to that land and how as how much access you have to that land. And then the British post uh, passed the law that that land is not useful; it's unutilized because land is supposed to be used, right? And then that is what my research was trying to understand, where the British were coming from and what the Ghanaian resistance to that was, legally speaking. Because if you want to make a case in law, spirituality is not considered to be a legal concept because it is not provable according to legal studies. Mm -hmm. But the Ghanaians were trying to make a legal argument for spirituality on the protection of sacred forests. So that's what my research was based on initially.
0: And uh, when I was in Ghana recently, I remember some Ghanaians um, telling me about a case of uh, a a young man who had sent a young woman to school. I think maybe he was a taxi driver, and he sent a nurse to nursing school. school, And then she finished, and then she was like, I could never be attracted to a guy like you. And then he did some kind of a spiritual thing, and she died. Yeah, and they were saying that's not prosecutable under Ghanaian
1: law. It's, yes, because um, to be, you have to, uh, in law, legally, you have to find a causal link between the person dying and uh, the person who is uh, accused of killing the person. So, if I'm standing here and you are sitting here, and I clap my hand and you died, I did not touch you. So legally <laughs> speaking, you cannot make an argument that. And that is because the Ghanaian criminal code is based on the uh, British jurisprudence of law. So if you cannot physically prove that he killed her, you cannot prosecute the person.
0: Well, I know a lot of
1: students, when they heard that, they were alarmed. but um, Yeah, because people still have a, a strong belief in the spirituality or stuff like that because mm-hmm. even in I was uh, telling uh, Lee earlier that in Ghana people who are Christians still go to forest to pray <laughs> even though they no longer believe in the earth goddess, mm-hmm. they still go to forest to pray because those grounds are still considered to be sacred. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter what your religious belief is in Ghana. People's it's a cultural too, it's thing. It's a cultural thing. thing.
0: And maybe tied to habits and rituals that you do as a person of maybe an ethnic group or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, my grandmother would go to her Pentecostal church and come home and sprinkle salt and lime around the house. Still, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. you know. <laughs> uh, my mom is a
1: my mom is a Muslim and she still will do uh, this type of yeah, rituals that she wants to. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: funny. So, do you have any questions for me?
1: Yeah, you. I'm jealous of you because you went to Ghana. <laughs> We went to Ghana this summer, and I was stuck here in Arkansas. I'm sorry. You got to see the sea. You got to see more rivers. I mean, I saw some lakes over here, but they are not the sea. I miss the sea. Oh, (laughs) you miss the sea. So, you what did you go to Ghana for? Mm
0: -hmm. We went to Ghana for study abroad this summer. That was the first trip. We um, got into Ghana, left from a flew into Accra. Um, we went to the Rotary and they discussed all the projects they were doing in Ghana um, with the students. We went to the W.E.B. Du Bois mm-hmm. um, uh, Center. You know he left the United States yeah. and died at the invitation of Kwame Nkrumah, yeah. the he first died a Ghanaian president. Citizen, even yes, though, yeah. he died he a Ghanaian citizen with yeah. his wife, so they are buried there. Mm-hmm. Um, then we took that 14-hour trek up to Mole. Uh, yes, and yeah. um, we saw, you know, all the vegetation, um, wildlife. And, and then, then we started tracing the transatlantic slave trade because yeah. it's in the north. So you started ma- from the
1: slave market?
0: No, we started, um, we went to Tamale, saw all the shea butter. Then we went to Salaga. Then yeah. we took the ferry down to um, Yeji. Mm-hmm. Um, we, uh, we, we, we went to We went to Blogotanga, uh, we went uh, is rise to Navrango, um, you know, all those sites of slavery and resistance that African um, experience, um, all the co- indentations in the rock where Africans were fed in Salaga, the largest slave market yeah. where slaves were brought from Mali and all those Mali, places. Yeah. And then... Um, We went to Kumasi, went to the Palace of the Asantehini.
1: Menchia
0: Palace. Yes, the Menchia Palace. We went to Asin Manso, where the slaves had their last bath. Went to Cape Coast and Elmina Castle, the Door of No Return, now called the Door of Return. Um, We went, we climbed the Afajato in in the Volta. Afajato. Thank you, (laughs) Anthony. I see I'm going to do a lot because, you know, I think I'm a tree speaker. Yeah. You know, I'm gonna say all the three words I know. Yeah. <laughs> is an
1: everywhere actually. Yes.
0: Yeah. Um, and so that's right by the border yeah. of Togo. So you go to see inside Togo? Uh we they didn't let us. Even and and, and, and also um Burkina no, Faso. But if you're standing on Afajato, you get yes, we street. see, yes, yeah. we saw that from the top of the mountain and also by the border of Burkina Faso too. And mm-hmm. they're now embroiled in all mm-hmm. of these kinds of mm-hmm. controversy as we see with yeah. Niger and all of that kind of stuff. And um, we did a community service in Casawa, um, wow. and um, and then
1: places I've been to a more than one.
0: Yeah, and then <laughs> we came back, and then I went back for um, Panafest and um, the Association for the Study of the Worldwide African Diaspora that was held in Ghana um, this July into Emancipation Day yeah. in August. I think
1: that's celebrated biannually, right? Uh yes. Yeah. Panafest is. Not as popular as it used to be when I was a kid growing up.
0: That's what everyone says. Yeah, when I
1: was a kid growing up, used to be on TV all the time. Yeah, but for some reason, there seems to be a divide now, like between the diaspora
0: and the indigenous, and I think that that has to do. It has to do a lot with the promoters and you know that kind of a thing. So,
1: um, uh, so you know. Yeah, so you re- you went to school in Ghana for some time, right? Yes,
0: I went to the University of Legon. Yo. The University of Ghana at
1: Legon They call it a premier
0: university. That it is. <laughs> I know when we went to um, KNUST, uh, you know, uh, my GA, who's Ghanaian, was trying to, I was like, ah, please. When he went to Ghana, I gave him pure headaches. I yeah. was like, ah, don't you feel educated? Feel the education <coughs> going into but your head.
1: I think his school is better than... University of Ghana, but do you want to leave? Because it's a university of science and technology. So, Kwame Nkrumah is named after the first president. Ah, please, I beg. <laughs> I can
0: see you're here for propaganda. <laughs> <laughs> so,
1: how is your experience now? How similar or different is it from when you lived in or schooled in Ghana?
0: I think Ghana um, is changing a lot. I find Ghanaians to be more open now. Um, in my past experience, I Ghanaians tend to be a bit shy. Um, yeah. They are very, they tend to be not outspoken and um, they are, I think, kind to a fault, you know, yeah. they will not speak up. they will like go through the, pro- they're so disciplined. You know, um, now I think I think perhaps because of the influence of social media, just by the ads and things that I'm seeing, yeah. um, how people are behaving. I was in Kona, um, Kona, the, Kona, the club in, yeah, like, yeah, in, in Osu, Osu yeah, 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 and and uh, various other places. Just just by what I see and all that, it seems like the society is you yeah. know opening up but more
1: and all that. Another a little bit of pushback to that will be a place like Kona. Mm-hmm is very popular among people who are experts and repats. Mm, okay. So Ghanaians who've lived abroad, Ghanaians who have uh, traveled abroad, Ghanaians who are heavily influenced by Western culture are likely to go to corner.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah, so sometimes, I think your assertion is right, but it's right in the urban space. And I need to clarify this. In Ghana the word urban means different than it means in the US. Oh really? Yeah, in Ghana the word urban just means that people who live in big cities. Mm. And I think in uh in the US the word urban is reference to race, right?
0: Well, it's cities but because black people were confined to cities to that rental market of cities or black blacklined um redlined to cities, I think it became there was a conflation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah so Yeah. So I think yeah, there has been a lot of development, and a lot have to do with education as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So the more people know about themselves and their cultures, the more outspoken they are. Be- they are becoming, and I think still the older generation are still kind to a fault. Oh really? Yeah, I think so. Bless you. I think it's the younger generation that is more of more open now. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Because even between me and when I was growing up, I was considered to be a more outspoken person. Right. But I realized that my junior my junior brother, my junior sister, they are even more than I was. And they don't care what anybody says. They're going to do what they want to do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so how do you find the United States now?
1: So the conversation is in two parts. One, I expected things to be... People were kinder than what I thought. What were
0: your, your, your expectations? People were, were what? kinder
1: than I thought it would be.
0: Oh, you thought Americans were mean? I
1: thought they were going to be mean. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, because the perception of America I had is mostly based on the news and the media. So I thought people were going to be mean. And maybe it's because I'm in the South. Mm-hmm. People were extremely nice. So that was took uh, some time for mentally get used to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and two. There is very little difference between how people act in America and how people act in Ghana.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, because I one thing I'm beginning to realize is human beings are just human beings. Exactly, they're just yes. trying to survive everywhere. Everywhere. So I remember telling somebody that um, my my life in. Arkansas is not too different than my life in Ghana. Yeah. And they're like, so are they was is there was there racism in Ghana? I'm like, yes, you know, in the but I didn't experience it on the daily. Yeah. But it's not racism is the least it's of it. It's not overt yeah. and
0: entrenched. Yeah. Um just like in Jamaica as well. It's like is there racism in Jamaica? It's like yeah. check out the Miss Jamaica's. All of them look almost white. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's the same thing, you know, if you go to Ghana you can see just the skin bleaching project um, products, yes. you know who who is considered beautiful by virtue of who is on TV and who is positioned in ad and ads and what they look like, right? Mm-hmm. Um, who gets to do what, mm-hmm. you know, by those kinds of standards? I would say as well. Yeah.
1: And I think that is changing. There are a lot of things that are contributing to that. When I, I did mention at the beginning, I wrote a book called the. Uh, everything that happened and the people who made it. And Mm -hmm. it's basically focused on the entertainment industry Mm -hmm. because that's why I worked for most of my life. But there was a chapter on beauty in my book, which is on beauty pageants. And there's a beauty pageant in Ghana called Ghana's Most Beautiful. And it was the first pageant in years to include that beauty in Ghana should beat Ghanaian standard, which means that plus-size people were... Okay, to
0: well, is Ghana is your plus size in Ghana? Or are they just Ghanaians?
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, because so that's a projection though, of American yes, culture. Yeah, so Ghanaians, even though Ghanaians are generally more on a plus side than skinny, when it came to beauty pageants, only skinny people were, uh, were I won't say allowed, were mm-hmm. welcome in beauty pageants. Yeah, and Ghana's most beautiful was a pageant that said, No, the beauty standard is any Ghanaian, yeah, and so. It was something that has been on for the past ten years, and it is the, one of the most high-rated TV because the TV reality show Beauty Pageant, one of the most high-rated TV events in Ghana, and because of that, people are beginning to accept their Ghanianness. So I think there is there's going there's a reduction in the issue of bleaching. It's not too great, but. There's a reduction, there's an acceptance of your African hair, there's an acceptance of African beauty or Ghanaian beauty Mm -hmm. now.
0: And just to wrap this up, you know... um even the idea, you know, thinking about the idea of how Ghanaian women wear their heads here yeah. trim, trimmed mm-hmm. and where that comes from. Yeah. Right? The idea that these girls went to missionary schools yeah, with white people trim, yeah, who yeah. could not <laughs> comb their hairs. Yeah. And so they trimmed it to so that they wouldn't have to worry about platinum hair that was not a white texture. Yeah. And <clears throat> we see those kinds of issues here in the yeah. diaspora. Not You know, in terms of black hair, Mm -hmm. we see the crown act being passed now, and all of that kind of stuff.
1: For a long time, those type of, like, um, women with dread and Africanized hair were not accepted in corporate spaces. Right. But now, there seems to be an acceptance of that. Right. Because now, especially highly successful women in Ghana, want to wear their hair natural. Yes as yes. a way of embracing their Africanness and also maybe as a way of, as their their little way of being, what's the word, undisciplined? Yes, <laughs> yes. Because the, that's their way of saying, I'm not agreed to accept the white standard.
0: It's, it's a pushback against uh, colonialism and imperialism and cultural dominance. So that's a good note to kind of uh, wrap up on. And so, as you can see, we're in for a great season. Tony here is a man of many experiences, and we plan to, you know, interview a wide range of of folks uh, this season that will give us some insights into the various ways in which African and African diaspora Studies are making inroads, whether it's in football or it's in medicine or it's in politics or art or literature, right? Everyday uh, stuff, volunteering, you know, community work, right? This is what we do, and this is why we're undisciplined. So, thank you, Tony. Thank you for having me. But when you said
1: football, do you mean real football?
0: I mean the football that the majority (laughs) of world plays. Okay. undisciplined is a production of kuaf public radio it's hosted by dr karee banton and nenabee tony it's produced by leah grant if you like today's episode please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your preferred podcast app